Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts are going to discuss the text for the first Sunday in Advent in 2018. Before we jump in, we wanted to remind you about our newsletter, In Medias Race. In Medias Race is a bit of a theological digest from Theopolis that we release each week. It contains a new video, podcast episodes, articles from our website, and more. And if you sign up, you're going to get a free ebook from Alistair Roberts on Acts 2 and the church's mission called Making a Prophet. So if that sounds like something you'd enjoy, we have a link down there in the description for you, and we look forward to serving you in that way. With that, we really hope that you enjoy and are edified by this discussion over these passages. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. This is Peter Lightheart, and I'm here with Brian Motes. And Alistair Roberts is joining us from Durham. Welcome back, Alistair. We're glad to have you back to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, Alistair has been on the road for the last couple of weeks, and uh, particularly uh, speaking around various places in the U.S., uh, he attended the Evangelical Theological Society meeting and participated in a seminar there and uh, had a couple other speaking engagements. If you follow him on Twitter, you can see some links to the things that he was working on in the States. Um, but uh, we're, we're glad to have you back to the podcast and uh, I look forward to the discussion today. It's good to be back. The readings for this Sunday are the readings for the first Sunday of Advent in 2018. That's December 2nd. That's the Sunday coming up. And the readings for this Sunday in this series C of the lectionary are Jeremiah 33 verses 14 through 16, 1 Thessalonians verses, uh, 3 verses 9 through 13, and then two choices for the gospel reading, two readings from Luke. Uh, Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 40, which is Jesus' triumphal entry, uh, Luke's account of that. And then Luke 21, verses 25 to 36, which is part of the Olivet Discourse in Luke. Um, and, of course, these are readings for a specific church season, and they're all organized around the themes of that season, particularly the theme of the Lord's arrival, His coming, His parousia. And that's really the overriding theme that we'll see in the readings Throughout this season, Advent means coming, of course, and it celebrates and anticipates the coming of Jesus in the flesh, the celebration of that coming at Christmas. But the church has historically designated several weeks prior to Christmas as preparation, as a preparation season for that celebration of the incarnation. And these uh, Advent Sundays are devoted to uh, various aspects of the coming of the Lord as uh, the Bible speaks about the Lord's coming in a lot of different contexts. We often think about the, the Lord's coming in terms of the incarnation and the final coming of Jesus for judgment. The Bible does speak about both of those as the Lord's advent. But there are, uh, the Lord comes in many ways throughout the Bible, and that's the, the, the uh, advent readings are touching on those various ways that the Lord comes into history, the way he comes to us in, in our individual lives. Uh, the way he comes to the world in judgment in the in the midst of history and not just in at the at the last at the last day in the final judgment but he he arrives and comes to uh, sort and to judge and to sift at various times and places 
Advent is sometimes thought of as a penitential, penitential season, a season of reflection. It is a season of uh, joy because we're anticipating the coming of the Lord and the Incarnation. But um, the, that note of penitence, that note of uh, self-examination does seem to be appropriate. Uh, when Jesus arrives, when he comes in his Incarnation, he comes with a message of repentance for Israel and calls Israel to repentance because the kingdom is coming. And so uh, in the midst of our uh, anticipation and joy for the incarnation and the coming of the Lord, this, this note of self-reflection seems, does seem appropriate. When the Lord comes, we need to be prepared for his coming. We need to, be, um, we need to repent and, uh, because the kingdom of heaven is coming. The Jeremiah passage, our Old Testament passage, is a, is a bit of Jeremiah 33, uh, but it's preceded by a number of, uh, by um, more than half the chapter, which describes the restoration that's coming to Jerusalem. This is a, uh, a message that Jeremiah receives from the Lord and then delivers to, uh, uh, de- delivers to Judah during the time that he's confined. He's in, a, he's in prison, so this is a prison prophecy, we might say. Uh, and the, the accent of the prophecy here is not on wrath, but on uh, the Lord's restoration. Jeremiah is largely a prophet of doom uh, about Jerusalem and Judah. He's talking about the Babylonians rising and coming to destroy the temple and to destroy Jerusalem. He's warning the kings of Judah to repent and to conform to the Lord's order of things by submitting to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, but around the early 30s of Jeremiah, you have this turn and you have a number of chapters where there's a, uh, a promise of restoration. And this chapter falls into that. Um, the promise includes a promise of healing for a sick Judah. It promises cleansing for their iniquity. He promises restoration of the cities. The land has been emptied out and desolated. But he says that there, it's going to become a place where shepherds, again, rest their flocks as a habitation for shepherds. There's a restoration of gladness and joy, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. All those things are being restored uh, when the, in the, Lord's, uh, the Lord will turn the fortunes of Jerusalem around. Uh, and in the midst of that, uh, the Lord promises that in the days that are coming, he's going to bring a new David or bring a branch from David that's going to spring up. Uh, this image of a branch from David is linked up with passages in Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah 10 describes the, the uh, judgment that comes through uh, the Assyrians. The Assyrians come with, um, with, as, as the Lord's axe, and they're cutting down the, um, cutting down the uh, tree of David, cutting the tree of David down to its roots, so that the, the family tree, the royal family tree of David is no longer but then once it's cut down to its roots, the Lord is going to make a branch spring up, a new, a new growth from the stump of Jesse. And that's going to be the Messiah. That's going to be the Davidic king. Um, that's, the, that's the image that Jeremiah is also using, that uh, there's going to be a, a, a new growth in the house of David. Um, Jeremiah is living in a time when the house of David is winding down. Uh, the kings of Judah are being killed or taken into captivity to Babylon. Jehoiachin is going to end up in Babylon, and he's going to survive during part of the exile. Uh, but the monarchy is not restored after the exile. Uh, and so this, this prophecy does refer to 
Davidic leadership after the exile, Zerubbabel, who helps to rebuild the temple, is a descendant of David. But it's reaching ahead beyond that to uh, the, uh, the uh, final restoration of the Davidic line that comes with the incarnation, with the coming of the Lord. I, th- I think it's, it's interesting that the, the, the work of this branch is described in terms of a work of justice and righteousness. The branch is called the righteous branch of David. He's going to spring up from the destroyed stump of uh, David's house. And he's going to execute justice and righteousness on the earth. He's going to bring salvation, but in bringing salvation, he's going to bring a restoration of justice. Uh, and that's, that's the way that I, Isaiah also describes the work of the Messiah. He comes in order to bring salvation, and that's parallel to bringing righteousness. Um, the Davidic king is a king who rules in justice, and he re- restores um, a just order to the people of God. It's worth noting that this promise here in chapter 33 is a largely repeated promise from chapter 23, 5 to 6, where we have virtually the same words, slight differences. But the context there is more that of destroying shepherds rather than the desolation that um, there's still the theme of shepherding in the background. But it seems as if that process of rendering the place desolate has continued and reached a a further point by chapter 33 and into that context we have the repetition of this particular promise. One of the things I find particularly striking about Advent is the way that we are called to enter into the experience of Israel in anticipating the Messiah and when we're reading a text like this it's one of the things that we are invited to do. Some of the great Advent hymns like O Come, O Come, Emmanuel have this theme in them that we enter into the experience of Israel looking forward to the one who will bring the promises to pass and very often we can view the experience of Israel merely as a sort of vanishing mediator that brings us Christ but it's the making of as it were um, rather than integral to the story something that we're supposed to enter into but within the expectation of Jeremiah we see that Christ's advent is going to be a fulfillment of promises to Israel and Judah. It's going to be the fulfillment of God's good intent for David's line. And so in entering into this experience, we are entering into the experience of those who are the recipients of a promise being fulfilled. We're not just um, replacing um, or leaving behind this experience of David, Israel and Judah but we're actually participating in it. We're becoming part of this group of people to whom the promises were fulfilled. And Advent season, I think, one of its strengths is its connection of the experience of the church with the expectation of Israel. Yeah, and there's a, an obvious parallel between that experience of Israel anticipating the Messiah in his first coming and the condition of the church between the two primary advents of the Lord between the incarnation and the final judgment. And so that, uh, that uh, re-experiencing of Israel's anticipation puts us, it, it reorients us to an, our actual position in history, which is still in a position of anticipating uh, a, final, a final judgment, final righteousness, final justice, the final appearance of the king to set everything in order. Yeah, your, your, comment, about the, your comment about the hymns of Advent uh, is... Uh, 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 strikes home with me. Um, every year I, I dust off my old essay uh, about how N.T. Wright stole Christmas and uh, 
how right by putting the the uh, coming of Jesus into this context, into this um, a tense political context that you have in ancient Israel, uh, first century first century Judaism, by placing Jesus in that context, it's made some of the traditional Christmas hymns look very sentimentalized and um, and uh, reduced by comparison, which is interesting because the, the Advent hymns tend to do what you're saying. The Advent hymns tend to recognize the the context in which Jesus is coming. It talks about it's it's about exile. Uh, o come, O come, Emmanuel and includes hope for exile. It's about uh, the anticipation of the coming of a king. Uh, it's about the fate of of Judah and Jerusalem, and all those elements that are part of Advent hymn, hymnody, um, frequently missing in the hymnody of Christmas. Um, and um, I think some of those Advent themes need to be brought over into uh, into our Christmas hymns more than they, they more than they often are. Uh, I should. We should also note the the, the uh, referenced in verse seventeen of Jeremiah thirty three to the Davidic covenant back in uh, it's recorded back in Second Samuel and also in First Chronicles. Um, the Lord's promise that uh, David will have a permanent kingship, um, and here we find that Jeremiah is repeating that promise in spite of the fact that the uh, Davidic line is seems to be interrupted and seems to be cut down. Uh, the Lord's promise stands, and uh, the Lord is committed to uh, having a, a, a Davidic king on the throne. Um, and uh, even though history looks, it looks like history's uh, the history of the Davidic kingdom has uh, gone into a, uh, a cul-de-sac. It's it's run aground. Uh, the promise of God is going to is going to prevail, and David will have an heir. Uh, and that's linked also to the, what what's said in the following some of the following verses, which are not part of the reading. But if, uh, down in verse 22, uh, an allusion back to the Abrahamic promise, as the host of heaven cannot be counted and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the seed of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. So that's a, that imagery of um, stars, a seed like stars, a seed like the sand on the sea is an Abrahamic image. But now that Abrahamic image is being focused down into the Davidic line, um, I think that's the kind of heart of the Davidic covenant is that Israel's promises that God has made to Israel, the son, are now focused on the son uh, who is the king. And the king is going to be the individual uh, Israel, embodiment of Israel, who's, through whom the Lord's promises to the people are going to be fulfilled. Uh, and we see that same dynamic going on here. The Lord is going to uh, fulfill his promise to place a Davidic, uh, see, the Davidic king on, on the throne uh, and through that Davidic king, he's going to fulfill the Abrahamic promise to uh, multiply the seed. What do you make of the presence of the Levites as part of this picture? They're, they're quite prominent in verse 18 and um, 21 to 22. Right. Uh, well, I think that there's a couple of things that I would see going on there. I mean, you have the, at the very general level, you have a promise of restoration of monarchy and a promise of a restored priesthood. David will not lack a man on the throne, and there will never be there will never lack a Levitical priest to offer ascension offerings and tributes and prepare sacrifices. And um, those two, um, that pair, king and priest, are uh, those are the uh, pillars, as it were, of Israel's order. And so, rest, restoring those two offices, uh, as in as in Zechariah, for example, 
uh, restoring those two offices means the restoring the house of Israel. Uh, the other thing I think of is the way that um, uh, having recently um, worked through Chronicles uh, over a number of years, um, what, what comes to mind is the way that David's, David's, David's reign is linked up with the uh, reorganization and the, uh, the redeployment of the Levites. Um, the Levites, the Levitical line, the Levitical priests, of course, go back to uh, the Mosaic order when Aaron and his sons become the priests and the tribe of Levi is designated as the assistants to the priests. But then during the monarchy, David gives particular tasks to the Levites, assigning them to, uh, particularly uh, to um, lead the, the musical offering that takes place at the temple, and also organizing them into uh, a cycle of, of uh, uh, courses of priests that come on duty uh, over the course of uh, over the course of a year. So he organizes this uh, um, uh, administratively organizes the priesthood, uh, and uh, also the priests uh, are put in charge of uh, are put in charge of other things within the temple. Some that are put in charge of uh, the treasury of the temple, for example, which plays a pretty prominent role in Chronicles. So the the fact that you have a restoration of a Davidic line along with a restoration of the priests, it's not just the, the pair of offices, but if you have a true restoration of David, then that means that the Levites are going to be uh, are going to prosper too. Those two things go together in David's reign, and they'll go together in the, the reign of the new David. Would you connect this with Isaiah sixty six with the prophecy of the new heavens and new earth and the um, taking of some of the presumably Gentiles to be priests and Levites. Yeah, I think that would be. I would think that be a good parallel. So when uh, when the servant of God, the servant of the Lord, servant of Yahweh, to use Isaiah's terminology, which I think is a royal figure, when the servant of Yahweh has finished his work, then there's going to be a gathering of worshippers, and that will include people who aren't aren't priests according to the flesh but are priests according to the New Covenant, according to the Spirit. The, uh, uh, if we could move on to the epistle reading, um, uh, before, we were, before we began the podcast, we both confessed our uh, comments on 1 Thessalonians 3 were going to be rather thin, so we're just admitting that up front to those of you who are listening to us. But uh, just just to put the the, the uh, text for the reading uh, the the text for the lectionary is the last part of First Thessalonians three, uh, and that refers to uh, Paul's hope that the Thessalonians would be established without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His holy ones with all His saints. Um, so that that I think that's why it's in that's why it's in this set of Advent readings. There's a reference to the coming of the Lord Jesus, which may be a reference to a final judgment, a final coming, that Paul wants to, uh, Paul is praying and working so that the Thessalonians will be prepared to stand before uh, the Lord at that final, that fin- in that final judgment. Uh, it could refer to something that's more imminent, uh, the coming of the Lord at, uh, at, uh, in AD 70 that we'll look at in the Olivet Discourse in a few minutes. Um, but it, uh, either way, we have some some notion of coming, and I think that's that's uh, the reason why this text is here. And I think this reinforces something that we've already alluded to, that the coming of the Lord uh, means that we are, the fact that the Lord is coming is an, is an exhortation to repentance, to establish our hearts without blame and holiness. When the Lord comes, he comes in to deliver, but he also comes to 
assess. He comes to judge. And so his coming is always a time for repentance and self-examination. Uh, I think the, the, other, the other thing that I thought of in this passage was the, uh, the role of Timothy. Paul is writing to the Thessalonians and he's talking about how Timothy was sent to them to find out what was happening in, the, in Thessaloniki and uh, then came back and reported to Paul. And the text that we're reading for this week actually begins with Paul's uh, thanksgiving because of the Thessalonians' faith and the fact that they're standing firm in the Lord. Uh, but, but Timothy's role was interesting. As, um, and this, this appears in other places in Paul's writings when he, um, he speaks of his own uh, coming to different churches as a kind of parousia. His uh, visit to various churches would be a, modeled on Jesus' own visitation. Uh, he would be coming to sort things out. He would be coming to pronounce judgments. Certainly be coming to, um, to commend and to encourage but uh, Paul acts as if his coming is the coming of the Lord. And I think we have, uh, with Timothy, we have something similar, that Timothy is sent to assess uh, what's happening in the, uh, in the Thessalonian church. And he's kind of a mediator of Paul's arrival as Paul is a mediator of uh, Jesus' advent to these different churches. And if we can extend that, I, I think uh, we shouldn't just think of that as kind of a, a loose uh, literary kind of analogy. I think there's, there's a reality to it. Paul, as an apostle of the Lord Jesus, bears the authority of his Lord. And so when he speaks in a church, then he speaks with the authority of Jesus. When he delegates somebody like Timothy to do that, then Timothy is coming with the authority of the apostle, which is ultimately the authority of Jesus. Uh, and I think we can extend that to ministers of uh, Christ in general, that uh, it's part of the logic or the uh, import of ordination, that or ordained ministers are ordained in order to be spokesmen for the Lord. And the, the visitation of a pastor, the visitation of an overseer, a bishop uh, to a church would be like the visitation of the Lord and have that, kind of, have that kind of quality to it. Perhaps one of the things I find most arresting within this passage is the degree to which Paul traces back um, his relations with others to the work of God. Um, so the thankfulness to God for the joy that they have in the other party mm. um, that he has in the Thessalonians or the way in which the relations of the Thessalonians to each other are grounded in the work of God within them, making their love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else. And then relating to their love, um, Paul and the apostolic party, their love for the Thessalonians. And in all of this, there's a deeply theological account of things that will often leave purely on the surface level of human relations and in that I think there's a, a sense of what it means to be the communion of to enjoy the communion of the Holy Spirit that the church's fellowship is grounded upon a work of God not just upon human companionship. Mm. Yeah and and along with that I think then the, the way that Paul describes both the Thessalonians desire to see Paul and his companions and his desire to see them he describes that as a longing Timothy reports back that the Thessalonians are longing to see Paul and his companions just as Paul and his companions long to see them when he talks about his prayers in verse 10 he says that they pray most earnestly that we may see your face so the spirit is binding them together and the spirit is at work awakening these desires these passions to 
uh, be with one another. The Spirit is at work awakening Paul's uh, night and day prayer, his offering, his uh, daily offering of a sacrifice of prayer. Uh, the Spirit is awakening that, so he earnestly prays. And, and the, I guess just another dimension that uh, um, would link with Advent, uh, what he's longing for, what the Thessalonians are longing for, what he's praying for is a, a face-to-face encounter. Uh, Timothy reports back that the Thessalonians long to see Paul, and Paul longs to see them. His prayer is that they w- we may see your face uh, and uh, may complete what is lacking in your faith. You know, we, we have that imagery in the, or that description in the New Testament of our eventual face-to-face encounter with the Lord Jesus, um, where we will see him face-to-face when, the, when veils are removed and we uh, stand in the presence of the glory and see our, uh, our Savior face-to-face. Um, the consummation of the, the eternal marriage. But Paul sees, I think, kind of a glimmer of that or a glimpse of that in the face-to-face encounter that he's hoping for with the Thessalonians. And as you say, that's all, that that kind of encounter is possible only because the Spirit is at work to bind them together into a body. Not just a matter of human desires, but it's the Spirit awakening these longings and joining them together in this, in this uh, in face-to-face love and fellowship. And at the end, the expectation and the um, calling, exhortation to strengthen hearts so that they can be blameless and holy in the presence of God and relating that to the coming of Christ with all the holy ones. It's an expectation not just of seeing Christ, but of seeing the heavenly assembly of which we are all yeah. participants. Right. And so that coming Advent is the Advent of the bride mm. and the bridegroom. It's the bringing together, it's the descent of the um, the New Jerusalem and the fact that we will see each other truly for the first time um, in that Advent. Um, as we see Christ as he is, so we will see each other as we truly are. And that expectation is anticipated in, to some extent in Paul's, ex- Paul's longing to meet with the Thessalonians in this, um, in this age. Yeah, good. I, I, that wasn't that wasn't so thin, Alistair. I think we did a good job. If I may commend us for uh, for squeezing something out of that passage, um, let's move on to the gospel readings. Uh, the two gospel readings, uh, two uh, commended gospel readings, are Luke nineteen verses twenty eight through forty, and Luke twenty one verses twenty five through thirty six. Let's uh, let's talk about the Luke nineteen passage. To start, this is the account of the triumphal entry. It's a very traditional Advent, first Sunday of Advent reading, because it's talking about the the coming of the King. Blessed is the one, uh, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. That, of course, took place late in Jesus' life, but uh, it's a it gets at the reality of his original coming in the incarnation. He comes as the King. He comes in the name of the Lord. In Luke's gospel, his Initial arrival is greeted by angelic choirs. In his arrival in Jerusalem, he's greeted by the multitudes who are rejoicing before the Lord that the king is finally coming. There's a structural parallel between those two. Very quickly, within at the beginning of Luke, uh, Jesus' ministry begins, and there's this warning uh, about the kingdom of God. It's uh, a kingdom that brings salvation and deliverance, but it's also a kingdom that brings judgment and and doom for others. And and Jesus' entry into Jerusalem uh, has the same kind of doubleness to it. 
there are those who shout, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, there are also those who are uh, disturbed by his coming, uh, and rightly so, because as Jesus goes on to say in the paragraph that follows the reading, um, Jerusalem is, uh, uh, is, uh, uh, going, to, is going to be uh, attacked, and he laments over Jerusalem. So his coming is both a coming for deliverance, to be greeted with joy, and a coming for judgment. Like the king in Jeremiah 33, he's the king who comes doing justice and righteousness. In the theme of um, coming kingdom, one of the things I noticed a while back that I found was quite interesting within this passage, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this. In the original story of the kingdom being established, there are a series of signs that are given to Saul as he is um, set apart. And he's told that a number of things will befall him. Um, first of all, he's looking for some donkeys and he'll be told that they've been found. Then he'll meet some men carrying um, goats, um, skins of wine and bread. And then he'll also, after that, he'll encounter some prophets and with musical instruments. And then the spirit of the Lord will come upon him and he will become a different person. Now we see those same symbols occur again as David is sent to Saul after his anointing with a donkey, skins of wine and a goat and bread and as the musician who will change the spirit of Saul. And in the Gospel of Luke it seems to me that these themes recur. So there are three events that the disciples are told will befall them. Um, it's an unusual sort of thing to happen this prophecy that this particular thing will happen, you need to do this at this point. Um, first of all, the event concerning the, the Donkin cult, then the meeting with the man bearing the water pitcher, who will lead them to the site for the celebrate, celebration of the Passover meal. And then finally, um, waiting in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes upon them, and they'll become new people. And I suspect that Luke is replaying the themes of um, the signs of the kingdom that are given to Saul at the very outset by Samuel. And so when Luke talks about in the upper room Christ talking to his disciples, I bestow upon you a kingdom, we should very closely associate that with Samuel and Saul. Um, and so this sign is part of a, a series of signs, I would suggest. Hmm. I like it. So the the uh, the water pot following the man with the water pot um, is in chapter twenty two, um, verses seven through thirteen. That's part of Jesus' instruction to uh, to go and find the upper room for the for the Last Supper. Yeah, that's good. I like that. And the ingredients for the Passover feast are very much bread, wine, and goat. Right. Right. Yeah. Seems to work to me. So, the, and that would that would mean that the the coming of the kingdom, the coming of the kingdom, is stretched out over the last number of chapters, the last several chapters of Luke's gospel. If the the gift of the Spirit, or you spilling this over into Acts, though, maybe. Um, so the the actual gift yes. of the Spirit, when they all prophesy, they all they all become new men with the fall of the Spirit at, uh, in Acts two. So that the coming of the kingdom is stretched out over the last several chapters of Luke and then into the early chapters of Acts. Yeah, I like that. And as, as Jim Jordan likes to say, if I like it, it must be true. <laughs>
Of course, I think Jim would like it. So I, I can't say that for myself, but I think Jim would like it. Therefore, it must be true. Um, the other, the other possible reading. Did you have, did you have any other thoughts on uh, Luke uh, nineteen? Just the significance that we have of um, kings riding into places. We have descriptions of Jehu coming in judgment, um, oh, right. and then we have um, the prophecy of Zechariah is in the background of this and all of, all of those I mean it's not explicitly referenced here but the the prophecy of Zechariah is important as is this Old Testament background of expectation of the king and coming on the donkey and the themes of particular persons coming in judgment or blessing upon horses or donkeys yeah, the the, um, the the garments on the road in front of Jesus um, takes us back to Jehu, Jehu the uh, anointed avenger against the house of Ahab. Uh, so again, that more generally that highlights again the fact that Jesus' coming is a coming uh, for judgment on Jerusalem and uh, as well as deliverance for those who uh, for greet those who greet him with joy. Uh, the uh, the other possible reading, the other possible gospel reading, is from Luke twenty one, uh, beginning of verse twenty five, and uh, this is a one of the last section of the Olivet discourse as it's uh, presented in Luke. And we've talked about the Olivet discourse a number of times um, on the podcast, both together with you and I, Alistair, have talked about it several times, and I've talked about it. Um, Solo when uh, when you have been absent from the uh, from the podcast. So uh, the general our general take on that I think we we've, we've made pretty clear this, this is a prophecy about the something that's going to happen within the generation of the disciples. Uh, it's about the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem that occurs in AD seventy and the imagery of cosmic destruction and turmoil that you have at the beginning of this. Advent selection is a prophetic imagery that describes the collapse of a, a political or social universe. The particular description of verse 25, uh, signs in the sun, moon, and stars on earth dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. Uh, sun, moon, and stars are rulers according to Genesis 1. The sea is an image of the Gentiles, so the roaring of the sea and the waves of the sea, uh, those are uh, the powers of the heaven shaken in verse 26, those are all um, descriptions of um, events that uh, are taking place in, uh, in, the, uh, in the first century. Um, there, there might be actual portents in the sky that are associated with that event. Uh, there might have been uh, some of the confusion that's described here, dismay among nations. That certainly took place during the siege of Jerusalem. Um, but the image, imagery has this kind of double meaning. It's, it might have some literal, some literal reference, but it's describing the uh, that, that's symbolizing the, the the political or social events, the military events of the fall of Jerusalem. And this is a this is a coming of the Lord, or this is a sign of the coming. Uh, those events or those signs take place. Verse twenty seven says they will see the sign. See, they will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and great glory. Quoting from Daniel seven. Daniel 7 is a prophecy about the ascension of the Son of Man to receive dominion that belonged to the beasts. 
And when all these things are taking place in Jerusalem, then the Son of Man will have come into his glory uh, and he will have arisen to take his throne and the the, uh, kingdom will have been established. And the Son of Man coming in the cloud is perhaps best thought in the context of um, Daniel 7, not so much as a physical appearance of the Son of Man in um, the clouds above us, but the sign of the Son of Man coming into power, um, this figure of the Son of Man from Daniel 7, and that is seen with the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus adds a, par- a parable to, uh, uh, to, um, to the end of the prophecy, verse 29, verses 29 and 30, uh, verses 29 to 31 really, the parable of the fig tree and all the trees. And the basic message is that uh, there's a, there are signs of a seasonal change, a change of the times when the fig tree puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when these things happen, when the things he's been describing begin to happen, then uh, that's a, an indication that there's a change of the time, that a new season of history has come, and that uh, the kingdom of God has is, is come near. The fig tree is highlighted, although it's not exclusively mentioned here. It's the fig tree and all the trees. Uh, but the fig tree is highlighted, and that links up with uh, uh, the event that happens at the beginning of the uh, of Jesus' final stay in Jerusalem. After his, shortly after his triumphal entry, he uh, curses the fig tree and it withers. And that's a, a picture of the ending of the temple. I think the fig tree there is uh, linking up with prophetic images of Israel at peace, images that go back at least to Solomon and the kingdom of Solomon when every man lived under his vine and under his fig tree and there was prosperity and protection and so the, the, the withering of the fig tree is a sign of the withering of that Solomonic peace. But here the imagery is going the other direction. This is not the withering of the fig tree. This is the fig tree that's putting forth leaves and is actually uh, going to begin to blossom, uh, suggesting if you put those two events together, you have the withering of the fig tree at the beginning of the week. You have Jesus talking about the fig tree putting forth leaves, new growth from the fig tree. You have a kind of a withering of the old Israel and a birth of a new Israel that's going to take place. So all these signs, although they're signs of destruction, are signs of the uh, arrival of the kingdom, the advent of the kingdom, which is a, a, a sign that uh, the time of summer is, is at hand. It's not, it's not winter that's approaching. In spite of the judgment or through the judgment, uh, the Lord is going to bring in a, a new order of things. The emphasis on being alert on God at the end of this section, it's often... Um, I found it interesting that dissipation, drunkenness and the worries of this life are connected together because we'd often think about the person who's drunk and um, and not really invested in labour and business and these sorts of things as opposed to the person who's engaged in the worries of this life and concerned with doing business well, providing for family, all these sorts of concerns. But it seems as if Christ relates these two figures in some respect, that the person who is drunk and the person who is consumed with the worries of this life, both of them are ignorant or unalert in preparation for the day that is coming. And so there's something about our relationship to the worries and concerns and the even the business of this world that 
we must step back from it to get a true perspective and not be um, intoxicated by it. Yeah, so you can, you can become intoxicated with, as you say, the business of life. We've developed words for that based on the uh, analogy with um, addiction to alcohol. We, have talked, we talk about workaholism. We don't, I don't think we generally think of it as, a, as, a, as an addiction. We probably think that that workaholism is a, probably, a, probably not good for your, good for your health, but it's, it's, that's a more excusable kind of addiction. But uh, yeah, that's a good point that Jesus is putting those things on a par. And the, the key thing is that both of them leave people inattentive to uh, the words coming. And again, that's, uh, go back to what we said at the beginning, talking about Advent as a celebration of the incarnation, that coming of the Lord, but also teaches us to be alert to the many ways that the Lord comes. And we can become, uh, think of the, the parable of the, uh, the rich man who builds new barns. He thinks he's, he thinks he's safe because he has plenty of, plenty of uh, goods saved up, and then the Lord comes, uh, and he, he dies that night, and none of that work and none of that savings have helped him. So the Lord can come in all kinds of ways, and we, can, we need to be alert to those different ways that the Lord comes and be ready for his coming if, it comes, if he comes in uh, a way that uh, shakes up our life, if he comes in a way that brings illness, for example, or family crisis, he comes in a way that makes us sick or puts us on, on deaths, on, a, on our deathbed. We need to be awake and ready for any of those comings and not be weighed down either with a life of dissipation or a life of inattentive, inattentive labor that's not paying attention to the coming of the Lord. In the first Thessalonians passage we read earlier, there is an emphasis at the end that Paul is um, desiring that their hearts would be strengthened. And it seems that Christ is talking about something similar here. First of all, the heart not being weighed down and then having the strength to escape. And something about the strengthening of our hearts, um, there seems to be the expectation itself for meditating upon the advent of Christ, that it does strengthen our hearts. And one of the purposes of this season, I think, is to um, steel our hearts against the pressures, the discouragements, the um, dissolution of this age, and to prepare our hearts, to strengthen them, to give them a a new courage and a new um, a new wind behind them as they face the struggles of this age, as they are as they are um, empowered by that expectation, and so to draw the strength that we'll need in order to stand, there must be a deep meditation on Christian hope. And so I think the purpose of Advent is in large part to reacquaint us with this hope and to draw our hearts out in that um, empowering hope once more. Advent is um, designed to remind us of the, the eschatological horizon of life uh, and that we live in the uh, with the uh, with that expectation of a the Lord's coming, it, it gives us that um, it gives it gives us that uh, eschatological uh, framework uh, as the as the framework for living, not not as a not as something that's simply a matter for speculation about uh, the future, who's the beast, who has the number of the beast, what is the what is the mark of the beast, uh, when is the Lord coming, but we have a 
we have a, our eschatological hope is there in order to form the way we live in the present. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.